Hello, and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the tiny lobsters that live in my ears. My name is Sewell, or if you look at me in a mirror, Lewis. And I'm here with my co-host, who is, as ever, sitting astride a burning giraffe, eating yogurt out of a bank manager's shoe with a spoon made of nothing but memories. What is your name, sir? Simon. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody has to bring some normality to this podcast. (laughs) Um, It's the first time I've said I'm the one to bring normality to something. As you may have guessed, there is a special theme to this week's uh, essay. We are talking about the essay Benefit of Clergy, Some Notes on Salvador Dali. Um, As I believe, maybe Simon can correct me on this, but I don't think this essay was published in Orwell's lifetime, because in the the Everyman edition of Orwell's essays, it says it was intended for Saturday Book, uh, and it was written sometime around 1944, but I believe intended for means it was never published, and in a way I'm not surprised. Well, in an ironic twist as to the theme of the essay... The, the, the essay was censored for obscenity. So the, the publisher decided that it was too obscene to be published. So it was accordingly cut out of each copy of, of, what was, of the book it was meant to be published in. Though for technical reasons, apparently they couldn't take it out of the initial publi- publisher's contents page. So it was in the contents page, but not in the book. Does that make sense? Yes, and I'm very glad you looked into that, because I myself had no idea whether this had been published in Mm. Orwell's lifetime or not. I'm not surprised that this was censored for obscenity, because, and listeners, I have to warn you now, um, if you listen to our podcast while you are eating or indeed after you have eaten, um, I would recommend that you maybe finish what you're doing, (laughs) let your stomach settle, give it an hour or so, and come back to this, because this is probably the dirtiest episode of Orwellian to date. Would you not agree, Simon? Certainly the most obscene. If anybody ever gets a hold of the unedited versions or the clippings that we take out from the other podcasts, then they wouldn't be so surprised by any theme in this one, but... Yeah, I, I think it's good that we've um, made people aware that there will be some obscenities in this. Not on our behalf, may I add. No, very very much. Uh, it, it's very much the language Orwell uses and the things that Salvador Dali writes about. And I, uh, we should say that this is essentially, I think, a review uh, by George Orwell of Salvador Dali's autobiography entitled simply Life. Are you a fan of... Salvador Dali, the artist? Um, well, I think we're going to get on to this later. I agree very much with Orwell. Um, Orwell. Um, <laughs> and I think Dali was an exceptional artistic talent. I think he was one of the premier artists of the 20th century, and I think he's up there with uh, the premier artists in the history of Western art. However, I do also agree with Orwell that he was a dirty little scoundrel and something of an egomaniac. How about you, Simon? What I wanted to ask you, Simon, actually, before whether you like Dali or not, you have spent a lot of time in Spain. Um, Have you ever seen any of Dali's work 
in person or have you been to any places connected with Delhi? I have um, seen his works in the Reina Sofia Museum in Madrid, which is the Museum of Modern Art in Madrid. And there's plenty of Dali's works there. That's also where Guernica is, in the same museum. Um, I've never been to... The only place I've ever been to in Catalonia is Barcelona. So I've not been to... Is it Figueres, where he based himself, where he was from, on the coast of Catalonia? I'm not very familiar with it, but he, he was a Catalan, is. wasn't he? Yeah, and that's where... His house is there, which he built in a very surrealist style, and it's um, apparently very interesting, but I've not been. I'd like to. I also feel I kind of know a bit about Dali because, um, as listeners know, Simon and I work in education, and my students uh, have to give uh, presentations based on famous creative people every year, and um, Dali is like a lot of Western artists, very big in Japan, and there are always a few students each year who want to talk about Dali. Oh. I didn't know much about Dali the man. What, what do you think of his work? What, what, what... I like it. Aesthet aesthetically, I appreciate it. I think it's really interesting, and it's challenging, and I like that in art. And I can, and I can see... I know the whole idea is that there is no meaning to meaning, but I can see what he was trying to portray in it. And I've always enjoyed watching it. And from a skill perspective, it's clearly really well done. And he was a very talented artist. But you don't know much about him as an, an individual. Just knew that he was an eccentric and I, I sought the limelight, but I didn't know anything about his history or the depravity, which apparently he wrote of himself in his biography. Or at least the depravity he claimed yeah. to be part of his life. And also, I think What's it's... the difference, though, in this, in true. this respect regarding this essay? Well, we'll get on to it. And also, was Dali really an eccentric? That's something that Orwell brings up later on. But, but let's dive right into the essay. Um, so, I would say the themes of this essay are... Uh, and correct me if you think I'm wrong. You're wrong. That's the end of Orwellian. Thank you, everyone. Um, art and morality. Mm -hmm. uh, the artist in society. Yeah. Um, good work versus good behaviour. Or not even necessary versus. Good work and good behaviour. Good work alongside good behaviour or in opposition to it. The cult of personality... That surrounds artists. Yeah. And when you say artists, you mean in the broad aspect? In the broad aspect. And I, I think, you know, we're going to get onto this, but I think this these days would encompass other kinds of so-called celebrities. Yeah. Um, and also uh, antisocial tendencies, as Orwell sees them. Uh, and then again, also the decay of the old world. Or um, decay of capitalist civilization. Yes. Uh, so let's start off with this very bold claim that Orwell makes at the beginning that, uh, I'll quote him here, page 650 in the Everyman edition, autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. And then he goes on to say, a man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying, since any life when viewed from the inside is, a sim is simply a series of defeats. What did you make of that? I absolutely agree. If, we, if I can bring that to 2022, when people constantly post on various social media, such as Instagram, their achievements, 
they put up a photograph of a certificate they've recently obtained or a, a, a victory they recently achieved. I've always felt that there's something hollow in that because if you feel the need to boast or expose you, the, your good fortune, there must be something behind it which made you want to do that, something more negative, something more shallow. A need for approval. A need perhaps. for approval. So all it says to me is that person's reality isn't victory or achievement, but the, the opposite. And they're having to cover that by boasting of their achievements. What do you think of this idea of Orwell's that if one looks at one's life from the inside, it will always seem like a series of defeats? It made me think about how many of us, uh, we have our ambitions. Often our ambitions are curtailed, either through circumstance or other responsibilities. Certainly, you know, I had 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I had ambitions which I have not yet realised and may never realise. And from the viewpoint of my 16-year-old self, maybe I'm a failure. But the thing about life is that you're constantly moving your own goalposts, aren't you? Exactly. No, nobody sets, well, very few people set the bar low. Nobody sets out their ambition to eat three square meals a day and be a bus driver. Okay, I'm speaking in the world you and I have grown up in. So nobody, we always, in ambition, in, in our inner thoughts, set it high, don't we? High could mean getting a $40,000 a year job. But if that's your ambition, you're unlikely to achieve it. So yeah, it's just a constant string of disappointments. That's going to be the title of my autobiography. <laughs> I think that's a bit unfair. A constant string of disappointments. But I'm not being self-depreciating. I'm agreeing with Orwell in that no matter what I have achieved in my life, it always came a bit short of what my inner ambition declared. Do you see what I mean? So I see what you mean. I um, get a PhD inside. I wanted to be a world-renowned academic instead of a village-renowned. What do you think of Orwell's attitude towards Dali. I mean, let's start off with something with a simpler question. Uh, what is Orwell's attitude towards Dali? I, without meaning to fawn over the subject of our podcast series, I absolutely agree with him 100% in his standpoint on this topic. In that he quite clearly doesn't particularly like the art of Dali, he certainly doesn't like the man or how he self-promotes, but he steps back and takes the middle ground. He says, um, the important thing is not to denounce this man as a cad who ought to be horsewhipped or to defend him as a genius who ought not to be questioned, but to find out why he exhibits that particular set of aberrations. He's looking at not the what, but the why. He's not judging, he just wants to understand why this guy behaves or behaved as he did. And I really love that attitude. Now we're living in this culture war, in this world of dichotomies where you have to be this or that, Brexit or Remain, Trump or not Trump. And I love the area of grey in the middle of dichotomies. And that's where Orwell has placed himself in this, and I salute him for doing so. Yes, what do you think? And I must say, I, I chose this essay because... I sometimes think, and I know some of the listeners feel, that you and I maybe agree too much with Orwell, 
because uh, we have some uh, common ground with him. So I chose this essay thinking you and I would say, no, Orwell, you're wrong. Dali was a genius, etc., etc. Yeah. However, as usual, Orwell surprised me with how nuanced his argument was, because his argument isn't that Dali is a... Uh, a sick man and his art is sick and he shouldn't be uh, given the praise he's given. Uh, Orwell is quite well, well, he measured. Denou- he denounces the conservative Philistines on the one side, but, he but also... also the socio-political blind promoters mm. on the other side, most notably in the, in the surrealist art movement. I mean, surrealist art isn't conventional, and Orwell makes a big point of recognising that, so... When you judge such a topic, you can't judge it from a conventional paradigm. You have to try and look at it from an from another angle. I think uh, this is very telling, page 654. Um, so again, as we mentioned, this uh, is basically a book review of Dali's autobiography. Orwell writes, I do not think that I have given an unfair account of its moral atmosphere. That's the book. Its moral atmosphere and its mental scenery. It is a book that stinks. However, Orwell goes on to write, Dali is a draftsman of very exceptional gifts, and Orwell calls him a very hard worker. And I think in Orwell's vocabulary, hard worker is quite a compliment. It's about as good a compliment as you're going to get from Orwell. He then goes on to write also, he is an exhibitionist and a careerist, but he is not a fraud. Again, very much uh, an Orwellian compliment. Uh, compliment. You are not a fraud. You are yeah. a genuine article. He has 50 times more talent than most of the people who would denounce his morals and leer at his, sorry, jeer at his paintings. And then he goes on uh, to point out how the kind of people who would just outright say that uh, Dali's work is perverted, the man is perverted, the work is perverted... Um, they're wrong, because as Orwell points out, in his opinion, such people are not only unable to admit that what is morally degraded can be aesthetically right, but their real demand of every artist is that he shall pat them on the back and tell them that thought is unnecessary. So here's Orwell saying, I don't like what Dali stands for, I don't like his aesthetics, I think he's as Orwell writes at one point, a dirty little scoundrel. (laughs) But I think his art is important, and I think he's an exceptionally talented artist. As you say, Simon... Is he justifying him there? Is he justifying his depravity? That's a very good question that I wanted to get onto. Do you think Orwell weakens his own argument in a way? Because it's clear that Orwell finds Dali's subject matter disgusting. He he, He clearly makes a moral... Judgment. Um, well, it, well, if kicking your young sister in the head and excreting upon people is not morally depraved, then what is? So we can understand him making a a, a, a bit of a moral judgment on Dali. And the, and these are things Dali claims himself to have done within this book. What did you think of all of uh, Orwell's opinion of all of these things that? Dali has claimed to do. First of all, I think it's very interesting to note that um, Orwell points out Dali may not have done any of these things, but it's the fact that he claims to have done these things which is important and which tells you a lot about him as an individual. 
Secondly, um, we've mentioned before in certain podcasts Orwell's preoccupation with violence and with sadism. I think that Dali famously distanced himself from the Spanish Civil War. He left Spain. He went back when Franco was in charge, but the war was over. And he never really came out in favour of either side. Well, he flirted with Francoism. In, in the mid-40s. And he also scarpered away from France, where he had built himself the minute the Nazis walked in. So all these things together, you've got to understand the socio-historical background to why Orwell dislikes Dali. Orwell, a man who fought in the Spanish Civil War, he went to Spain to put himself on the front line at the same time Dali was escaping from it into France. He, he wanted to get involved in the Second World War, whilst Dali, again, was escaping from it. And then, later in life, Dali moves to America when he realises that's where the money is to be made. So, do you think this dwelling of Orwell on Dali's seeming love for sadism, do you think Orwell is implying that Dali is a kind of a closet fascist? Yeah, I do. I think he's... As we know, the political is never never strays from the writings of Orwell and his essay. And I, I think he, you've got to take in that sociopolitical background with everything Orwell, Orwell, not Orwell, there you go. There's the, the surrealist Freudian slip of com, the day. Com, coming into it, yeah. That Orwell judges. But um, what I like is that Orwell doesn't essentialise the concept of obscenity. He says obscenity is a very difficult question to discuss honestly. And it is, isn't it? Especially these days, because I think it has really gotten even more polarised than when Orwell was writing. Because I think people in the public eye, people writing for newspapers, people writing for uh, online forums these days, they might be rather afraid to use the word obscenity or to say that this is obscene because it's seen as a very old-fashioned puritanical stance to take to say that this thing is obscene especially in a world where you are I mean let's be honest uh, you are a few clicks away online from a lot of obscenity well people are too frightened of seeming to be shocked by things and at the same time seeming not to be shocked at things. It's a very precarious position we're in there, like being cancelled or seeming to be prude. Or indeed seeming to condone the thing that other people think should be cancelled. Yeah. So we're in a very precarious position with regards to how we judge things which are deemed to be obscene or not. So, Simon, we're about 20 minutes into our podcast and we've not even discussed the title, which I think is vital for people's understanding of this essay. What is Benefit of Clergy? Because I remember I read this essay before not knowing what that meant at all. Well, Orwell tries to name the immoral license seized upon by Dali as the equivalent of a priestly function arbiter and dominator of the moral world, made feeble as a result. And he says himself, the the artist is to be exempt from moral laws that are binding on ordinary people. Sound familiar? 
with regards to priesthood. Just pronounce the magic word art and everything is okay. What do you think about it? I think it's definitely recognisable and I think it's something that continued past Orwell's death into the modern age. You know what it really put me in mind of was uh, rock stars. Um, 20, 30 years after Orwell's death, um, rock stars could be put in prison for drug offences, they could smash up hotel rooms, they could have sex in with various people in dubious situations and it would not hurt their careers at all. Enhance them in Indeed, some enhance them. Um, and so this idea, basically the old idea of benefit of clergy was that uh, in the old days when most people were observant Christians in the Western world, the clergy, the priests, etc., who were, you know, men at that time, um, if they broke the law they could demand to be tried by other clergymen, um, not by a secular court. And so that meant that they did not have to abide by the laws that those who were not clergy, the ordinary people, abided by. So basically, Orwell's proposing here that the artists of the 1930s and 40s have become a kind of secular clergy, who can do what they like because they are artists, because yeah. they are geniuses in, in common parlance. And I think that, as I say, I think that... Exempt that, from moral laws. Exempt of, from of moral laws. Society. And I think that that continued on past Orwell's death uh, to the modern cult of celebrity. However, what I wanted to ask you, Simon, is do you think that this is an idea that has had time cold upon it for example in the last few years with the me too movement yeah i wonder if our celebrities can get away especially with social media um, and fans being able to make their voice heard very easily i wonder if celebrities still have this benefit of clergy that's a very good point lewis and i wouldn't say it's been totally flipped on its head but I wouldn't say it's the benefit of the clergy anymore. I'd say it's benefit of the altar boy. It's, it's, it's declined somewhat. Because now, if a rock star is to come out and pronounce how many women he slept with in the last month, and how, he would just be crucified for it as being a misogynistic asshole. And rightly so, to be honest. So... But then again, the, the private lives of the people we proclaim to be celebrities are quite sordid more often than not, aren't they? Simon. Lewis. Does morality have any part to play in art, in your opinion? Can I cop out and say it depends on the artist? What would you say to that? I would say... Surely it's not on the artist, but it's on if, the... If I'm Alan Jones and I've sold my entire career, image and music on the basis of being an evangelical Christian, and then I release a song about satanic, sodomistic, S&M worship... Not that we're saying he has. Yeah, yeah exactly. But do you see what I'm saying? But if I'm a, a Nordic death metal band, then, yeah, it's what... It's what they sell themselves as. Well, it's what they sell themselves as. Hence, there's no hypocrisy in the in the moral message there. 
So for you, it's all contextual. Though. Yeah, everything's contextual, Lewis. You know I know that. I think that. But I think this is a good example of that. What do you think? Well, Orwell mentions the idea of art for art's sake. And I've always been... I find it hard to argue against the idea of art for art's sake. The idea that art should be somehow separated from the everyday, the humdrum, the... Uh, mundane aspects of life. Yeah. But there is some art which completely aligns itself with the humdrum, everyday's realities of life that like we talked about in the last podcast, the kitchen sink dramas and a lot of George Orwell's essays that we spend hours discussing are humdrum, everyday life. But it's art... According to Apple Podcast Rankings, we're, we're in the art league table. Well, that's because I put us there. <laughs> what did you think of Orwell trying to ground Dali, pointing out his sort of Edwardian influences? Um, let's not forget that Dali and Orwell were kind of a similar age. Yeah. They both grew up in the Edwardian period. Um, Dali was growing up in a decayed ex-empire, Orwell was growing up at the height of British imperial influence. Um, what, what, what did you make of his trying to ground Dali in, in that kind of Edwardian milieu? Well, I felt that Orwell was doing it as a way to say, he's nothing unique. This whole surreal, surrealist movement is nothing unique. It's just to play upon Edwardian intricacies. But then... He goes on to say, well, Dali knew, knew that himself. Dali himself came out and said his inspiration was the year 1900 and the art from that year. And that's what changed his view, his life view. What Orwell had to say about Dali here really put me in mind of another very famous iconoclastic artist, another controversial artist. Um, so... You know, there are two very famous quotes from Dali. One is quoted in this essay. The other quote is, um, you may have heard this, the only difference between me and a madman is that I am not mad. That is one of Dali's famous quotes. The other quote is from this essay, I wanted to be Napoleon, said Salvador Dali, I wanted to be Napoleon, and my ambition has been growing steadily ever since. Can you imagine the uh, British artist that that reminded me of? I think it's a very Wildean comment. I think it's a very something very similar to what Oscar Wilde would have said. Yeah, and that also a quip. put me yes, a, a quip, witty quip and a turning round. You know, a, a turning round of a common idea or phrase to make something witty. And what Orwell has to say about Dali makes me think very much about Oscar Wilde. This idea that there are two men who came from very bourgeois backgrounds, who in their art tried to emphasise their specialness. Now, I, I, I love Oscar Wilde. I think he was a great writer. I think he's a, an icon. However... He was bloody pretentious. Yes, there was a great deal of pretension to Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde... Now, I'm not talking about Oscar Wilde's homosexuality. That's no problem at all. But um, we have to remember that a lot of the young men 
Oscar Wilde was having sex with were young working class rent boys, and he was a very wealthy uh, man with a lot of social capital, as you like to put it. Mm. Um, so both Dali and Wilde would be under the spotlight in the modern world of Me Too and you, you know what I'm talking about yeah. here. But my main point here is that Dali and Wilde are similar mm. in that they are both examples of the very they're self... Both, they're both wild. They're both examples of the very self-aware, self-creating celebrity. Yeah. And they're that they're is, both narcissists. Yes, it's a word that Orwell does not use at all in this essay because I don't think it was current at that time. But basically this essay is about celebrity, isn't it? Yeah. And not the pitfalls of celebrity, but the pitfalls of society's view of celebrity and society's behaviour towards celebrity. So this is probably a question you wanted to ask at the end, Lewis, but let's, let's tackle it now. Can we? Because I think listeners like us to bring a lot of these themes into the 21st century. So what celebrities can you think of now that fit this mould? that are excused for their actions, for their, for their art, for their genius. And we won't go into politics. Boris Johnson. Well, one of the celebrities I was thinking of while I was reading this essay was Kanye West. Now, um, I'm aware... Oh, look at you. You're going to bloody come here wearing a cap next week <laughs> and a gold chain. Um, I've heard about him from my students, Mr. <laughs> West. Um, I'm absolutely certain Kanye West doesn't have a pocket watch. <laughs> I'm not, you, it's been a while since I wore uh, mine. And handkerchiefs to hand, um, which is what handkerchiefs should be. It was this quote here. So long as you can paint well enough to pass the test, all shall be forgiven you. Um, now, it reminded me of how... Um, Fans of Kanye West make excuses for his cozying up to Donald Trump and his comments on slavery by saying, oh, well, I'm not really, I don't really agree with his political ideas, but I, I like his music or I like his fashion or etc, etc. I, I think he's allowed to get away with a lot because he is very famous. And Well, I thought of Michael Jackson. People absolutely refuse to believe, despite the overwhelming empirical evidence, that he was a paedophile. You can't label the dead. Right, yeah. But, I mean, it's quite overwhelming. Like the, like the payments out of court, the photographic evidence, the first-hand accounts, that the man was clearly had an unhealthy interest in children. Yet, because of his musical genius... And being an entertainment icon, people just outright refuse to accept it. Something happened recently which made me, I, I thought about when I read this essay. Have you heard about the Jimmy Carr controversy? No, what is the, I mean, well, Jimmy Carr has <laughs> pro provided multiple uh, possibilities for controversy. But, but this, this one could be the one that gets him in the modern cancel culture. So Jimmy Carr, for those who don't know, is a comedian, a British comedian. And he's quite a controversial comedian. And he, in his Netflix stand-up special that was released last month... Which I might add was 
really it was marketed on its edginess, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. But he makes a joke about the Holocaust, about the Roma people who were killed in the Holocaust. And the, the gist of the joke being, that wasn't particularly a bad thing. He, he goes on to caveat that by saying he's joking and that people always mention how it was six million Jews who died in the Holocaust, but there were other minority groups as well. But the... Um, Groups that represent Rome, the Roma and discrimination against Roma have come out in force, and now the um, the evangelical cancel culture brigade has got on got on the bandwagon, uh, trying to see him taken down from all platforms. So where where do you stand on that? Like with the art form of comedy, where do you place obscenity within that? Does anything go in comedy, or do they have to also have some form of barrier erected, which they're not able to go beyond? Well, we talked about this before in our Funny Not Vulgar episode, and I'm very much of the opinion that comedy should be punching up. I mean, Jimmy Carr, the very wealthy, uh, white... Tax-dodging. ...middle-class tax-dodging, <laughs> uh, I think we can say that, um, yeah, comedian <laughs> uh, to be making jokes about the Roma. I mean, it's the last. You know what I'll say? You know how they used to say patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel? I think these days irony is the last vestige of the scoundrel. Maybe I'm old fashioned, maybe I'm too puritanical about it, but that's what I feel. Was his joke at the expense of the Roma exclusively, or was the joke using them as a vehicle to drawing attention to an issue? Well, to be honest, either way, first of all, if it's the former, it's not acceptable. Yeah. If it's the latter, why is this wealthy, middle-class, uh, non-Roma man using the Roma as a vehicle? The Roma are a people, not a vehicle. Why should they be used as a vehicle? To draw attention to a, a wider issue, that, that of um, genocide, of the narrative of the Holocaust, and how it's perceived and how it's um, remembered. To me, it Just doesn't homosexuals, seem... Homosexuals, Roma, um, other ethnic minorities, political people also were killed, but we rarely talk about them as being a part of the Holocaust, do we? Well, that's quite true, but is this a, a subject fit for comedy... Is this a subject fit for people to laugh over? I'm doubtful. But who judges what subjects are fit for comedy? Well, I suppose it's all up to the individual, isn't it? Because um, I, I'm, I'm very confused with the word offence. Being offended doesn't mean you're right. Thinking that something is obscene doesn't mean that you're right. Hence the, the complexity of the word obscenity. It's subjective, isn't it? Do you think Orwell has been subjective in his analysis of Dali? I do. I think that, and I mentioned at the beginning, I think this is one of the weaknesses of the essay, is Orwell clearly from the beginning makes a moral judgment about Dali and about his art. Orwell is, I think, very much affected not only by his Edwardian upbringing, but also by his socialist leanings and I think Orwell's Orwell's 
assessment of Dali's work as guilty and perverted. I mean, we haven't even touched on the fact that Orwell, again, this is, we've mentioned in many podcasts, one of the main problems with Orwell is his homophobia. And in this essay, he equates things that we find morally reprehensible today, like necrophilia, with things which we have changed our opinions on, like uh, homosexuality. Um, Orwell just blanket uh, identifies them all as perversions, and we haven't mentioned that, have we? Do we... Have we both then agreed that we're not going to attach an element uh, of zeitgeist to Orwell's homophobia? Seeing as at the time where this was written, clearly wrongly... Homophobia was, or uh, homosexuality was an illegal offence. So if you're looking at societal influence on people's opinions and their being, the fact it was an illegal offence, are we not going to give him some benefit of the doubt with regards to zeitgeist? For example, my father is in so anti-marijuana. Like he, he equates marijuana with heroin and bank robbery, yet people born in the year... 2001, marijuana, they probably equate with alcohol or cigarettes. So there's an element of zeitgeist to it. Are we not going to throw Orwell a line on those terms? Well, you make a good point there. However, I might say that Orwell, we might expect a bit more of him, given the fact that he was quite forward-thinking in other ways, especially in terms of race. Yeah. Not so much in terms of gender. Again, we've discussed that, <laughs> but uh, certainly in terms of race and in terms of, of politics and society. Yeah. If, we, if I can go again to Orwell's perceived homophobia, can we categorically state that he himself had no homosexual tendencies or are there any is there anything in the record that could indicate that he might have been either homosexual or bisexual well i think we know he was awkward with women we've mentioned this before he of course went to uh public school which is not an automatic indicator as we've mentioned before <laughs> uh, but he he went to school in an all-male environment um and some biographers of Orwell have mentioned his very, very close friendship with the writer Cyril Connolly. Um, and some people have suggested that that was a, as they used amorous. to call it, an amorous or passionate friendship. We don't know how far it went. One might look at Orwell's uh, later history of quite pronounced homophobia, his, his use of slurs like pansy, um, and his very sort of Spartan, manly, uh, projected image that he liked to give off in later years. And one might say maybe he's compensating for something, maybe he's protesting too much. Um, certainly, I think that he is, he's trying to, as you say, he's of his time, he's trying to seem, he, I think he's deliberately trying to seem of his time by aligning himself with the general attitude towards homosexuality of the 1940s. What we can both agree on, not just in the time we are speaking now, is that homosexuality, with regards to this essay, can in no means be 
grouped with the other depravities of Dali's biography. It's certainly not an obscenity. Something Orwell says in this essay, Lewis, is that Dali's fantasies probably cast useful light on the decay of capital or capitalist civilization. Eighty years later, capitalism continues to thrive, probably more than ever. Has it decayed? It hasn't, although we do constantly hear Morally. about late capitalism with a kind of implication that capitalism is nearing its end, although I don't know if the end is in sight yet. No, I mean, capitalism is just a cyclical boom and bust, isn't it? But if you went and spent two weeks on Wall Street, do you think you would see the decay of capitalist civilization? We, we might see some rather... Uh, extreme behaviour on Wall Street, I, I should imagine. What do you think, having, you know, we're talking about the future here, what do you think of the point he makes about Dali being very much a product of his time, of this point in history when the bourgeois and the aristocracy, instead of doing what their parents and grandparents did, as Orwell puts it, making love and hunting and... Uh, <laughs> and racing horses and things like that. Instead, after the First World War, they decided to invest in art and to go to, to set up salons, etc., etc. What do you think uh, is Orwell's point about the, the decay of the morals of the ruling classes? I don't want to see it as a decay, but an evolution. The various ways in which we ascribe social capital to ourselves, constantly evolve. From being seen in hunting dress and evening wear at somebody's manor house to being a, a patron of an artist. Suddenly that was the way to expose to the world your wealth and social status. It evolves to an extent where now it would be imagery of yourself in various locations. On Instagram? On Instagram. Uh, what could be conceived to be luxurious locations or consuming luxurious products. That's how you would gain your social capital nowadays. So it just evolves. And I think throughout that time, it was an explosion of artistic merit in both the literary and aesthetic world. And but don't or... forget, this is at the time where the speakies are starting to become popular as well. Like Hollywood's just coming into play. But Orwell is definitely making a judgment, isn't he? Because I think Orwell rather respects the old-fashioned aristocracy who spent all their time hunting and in the countryside. Uh, Does he? I don't think respects the word. I think he's used to it. But I don't think he respected the old bourgeois. I think Orwell has a grudging respect for those who remained in the country and we're doing outdoor activities con connected to nature, uh, whereas he doesn't like those well, who are in... Killing innocent animals in the nature. Well, we, we must remember Orwell had a, a deep connection to the land and to farming and to... So for uh, him, foxes were not a viable... Is there an essay in the future we're going to discuss with Orwell's stance on hunting? I don't know if there Shooting is. Shooting an elephant? 
I don't know if he ate the elephant afterwards. <laughs> so, where do you stand on the decay of capitalist civilization as we sit today in 2022? I keep thinking 2021, but it's 2022. I kept thinking about the way celebrity has moved on, even in our own lifetimes, with Instagram and the internet, and how this idea of self-presentation has, you know, in Dali's time, self-presentation was all about the artist in, a, in the salon, in the newspapers, in... Uh, at events. At events behaving like an eccentric. These days, all of us have the chance to make ourselves seem special online, as, you know, as Andy Warhol put it, our 15 minutes of fame. Well, that's the thing. We all now have our frame of fame. Just posting a picture and it can get liked by a multitude of people we've not met. Before we finish, Simon, I wanted to ask you, can we really separate the art and the artist? Peter O'Toole, Oliver Reed, Richard Burton, Richard Harris, these old hellraisers, without that the artist and what we know of the artist, how would we really value their art nowadays. I must say... These... Richard Harris made a lot of shit movies, as did Peter O'Toole. As did Oliver Reed. Yeah. They made some bloody good ones too. As you know, my favourite of all time, one of them, Lance Arabia. But we equate the two, don't we? Well, yes, they become c celebrities. Yeah. But I've always been rather... I've always been rather suspicious of the idea of the celebrity... I used to get asked, you know, I, I was a teenager in the early to mid 2000s. I mean, you were in the, you were famous at a very young age, like when you did the Milky Bar adverts. <laughs> like how, how, how does celebrity affect you? I don't like to talk about that period of like, my was life. Was it heroin, prostitutes, and the usual? Let me just say that there was a lot of stuff on me. Well, I. Melted milky <laughs> What was when did you go to rehab? <laughs> I grew up in the early two thousands, which I think was peak celebrity time. And I've always been very suspicious of the idea of the celebrity. And I think Dali really originated or along with Oscar Wilde, who we mentioned earlier, um I think they really originated the idea of the celebrity. And to be honest with you, I think this what idea... What Marquis de Sade? Well, how many peasants in the field, working in the Casanova. fields in France... How many peasants in the fields in France knew who Casanova or the Marquis de Sade But he wasn't was. looking to be famous among the peasants, just among his circle. Well, yes, but the difference is... A celebrity amongst his circle. The difference is today celebrities are looking to be famous the world over. And I think that this is um, something very telling about this stage of capitalism that we're living in. That being, as you've mentioned before with influencers, being is becoming more important than doing. And I think Orwell would be completely against that. Because as we, we mentioned in this essay... Orwell did admire Dali, 
But he didn't admire Dali for being. He admired Dali for doing, well, for creating, well, for drawing. It's all about substance. Like, in, beyond, behind Instagram, there's no substance. It, it's all face value. It, it's, it's all hollow meaning. It, so I think Orwell would despise social media for that, for that reason, that people can self-apostolize without any substance behind it. You've got people who are famous now, like, I say famous in inverted commas, or we, as you said the word earlier, influencers, having done nothing of any substance in their life, that they, having contributed zilch to society in any meaningful way, beyond being able to put on makeup in a, an appropriate way and self-exposing themselves in the right places at the right times. But am I just being old-fashioned? Is, is that the new, is that 20... First century substance. Well, was was Orwell just being old-fashioned in questioning Dali in his self-promotion? True. So, on closing words, promote yourself for ten seconds, Lewis. Um, I am a uh... Orwell podcaster on me. <laughs> You know what, I don't think anything else can be said but Orwell that ends well. Ta-da.